And now it's time for the Fiasco Family Movie Night. Welcome to episode 55 of Fiasco Family Movie Night. I'm Sean Frost. And I'm Tim Leonard. And this time out, we're taking a look at Witness for the Prosecution from 1957. Screenplay by Billy Wilder and Harry Kernitz off of an earlier screenplay by Lawrence B. Marcus based on the international stage success by Agatha Christie. Tim, what's it about? Well, it's about two hours. Give or take. It's it's also directed by Billy Wilder. The audience is introduced to barrister Sir Wilfred Robarts as he returns home to his practice and lodgings following a lengthy convalescence after a mild heart attack. Uh, we all know from our reading, John Mellencamp described a mild heart attack as one that happens to somebody else. <laughs> His home care nurse constantly reminds him to avoid strain and excitement, but instead of afternoon naps and calcium injections, Sir Wilfred winds up back in the legal saddle almost immediately. Leonard Vole, a man accused of murdering the old woman he's befriended, is pinned down by lots of different pieces of circumstantial evidence, but no real proof that he was the killer. And of course he protests his innocence, as an innocent person would do. He's an affable failure with a lack of money and prospects against him in the court of public opinion as well as in the Old Bailey. When the case is tried, Vol's guilt or innocence looks like it's going to be determined by the testimony of Christine, his wife, who he met in Germany immediately after World War II and who relocated to England once he shipped back home. She testifies that he came home the night of the murder with blood on his hands and clothes and confessed to the murder to her. Vol shouts that none of it is true and looks to have a date with the hangman, but a phone call from a mysterious cockney woman summons Sir Wilfred to a cafe, where a woman hands over a stack of love letters from Christine to a man named Max. In those letters, Christine details her plan to frame her husband for a murder, get the inheritance that the police think was his prime motive for the crime, and run away with her side piece. Once Vol has been found innocent, things really take off. There are several twists and turns of the plot in the last eight minutes or so, but the end of the film has a voiceover asking people not to ruin the ending for their friends, so I'm not going to do that here. But a whole bunch of things happen in a very short period of time. I got blindsided completely by one performer playing two roles, there's a secondary betrayal and a stabbing, and then it all ends with Sir Wilfred looking at a brand new criminal to defend in court, while his long-suffering nurse decides it's probably brandy and cigar time after all. So, that's what it's about, but uh, why did you put this one in the hopper? Uh, I saw this one about a year ago. And knew immediately that we had to talk about it because it's one of those things that I think a lot of people who are into films have heard the title, but I don't really hear anybody talking about it. And 
It's a shame because it's a lot of things I love. I love Billy Wilder dialogue. I love Agatha Christie plots. Um, I grew up reading all of my mom's Agatha Christie books. <laughs> um, you know, it, you know, as you said, it's two hours long, but you never really feel that. You're just gripped by, by what's going on. And I've stated before how much I hate courtroom dramas. Like, yes, the surest... I, I was a little surprised, honestly. <laughs> the surest way to get me to turn on a movie is to have lengthy scenes in court. But this is the exception that proves the rule. If more courtroom movies were as good as Witness for the Prosecution, I would love the genre. Um, this one does everything right. The drama isn't really about the mystery. The mystery is there, it's important to the plot, but the drama comes from the personalities at play and what they're doing to themselves and to each other, and and that's where the real meat of it is. Uh, yes, the ending is a complete shock, uh, but even watching it again, knowing what was coming, I was still riveted because it's it's the way that it's happening. It's it's not just, oh, aha, here is a new twist that's going to change everything. Because it doesn't change everything. It changes a lot. But what it mostly changes is how people feel about the verdict. And uh, I, I imagine we'll be getting to that a little later on. I should hope so. <laughs> I, I think one of the reasons that this one might not be as widely seen, uh, there's, there's two dozen and change movies that Wilder directed and, you know, Sunset Boulevard, The Lost Weekend, Double Indemnity, uh, The Apartment, Some Like It Hot. I mean, there's, there's Sabrina, Stalag 17, where in anyone else's career, this would have been a high point, but this is like the top of the second tier in, <laughs> uh, in Billy Wilder's. It's true. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible movie. And he had such an incredible career that it can easily get lost. I can see it not making people's top 10 Billy Wilder films if right. they've seen that many. Because you know, if they've seen 15 of his movies, some of them have to be on, on the lower level. Yeah. And there it is. It's got really unobtrusive cinematography and camera work. It's more of that invisible Hollywood style mm -hmm. rather than, you know, big swooping crane shots to draw attention to things. Uh, there's a nicely understated running gag of handing evidence back and forth between the the defense and the judge or the prosecution and the defense where everybody's just sort of in these big wide bench spaces and if there's something that has to be you know entered by the defense they just physically hand it to a dude who hands it to another dude who hands it to the lawyer yeah and then of course you know you have 30 seconds to read it and formulate a legal strategy <laughs> which he's really good at we could we could he jump is. to that to start with. Um, sure. Uh, Charles Lawton is amazing in this role. He plays 
Sir Wilfred Roberts, the barrister who's attached to the case. And he should be loathsome. This character should be so despicable that that you you don't want to see anything about him but he's wit he's written so well and Lawton is such an amazing performer that you're sucked right along into it he's he's you know almost the archetypical uh very skilled jerk who gets away with being you know a complete horrible human being because He's so good at what he does. And I hate that motif. Hate it. I I <laughs> thought there was a really great moment that kind of established his character when he's back from the hospital and he's just snapping at everyone and telling people to shut up and get out of his way. And, and they're all like crying because he's back and he hasn't changed at all after his convalescence. <laughs> Crying with joy. <laughs> Cry, yes, crying out of delight that he's back. And I'm sure some of that is the British class system at work with, you know, he's a knight. He's been he somewhere along the line. Somebody tapped a sword on his shoulders for his services to the legal profession. Uh, and he he is somewhat of a celebrity lawyer in this. There's moments where people tell him, you know, well, I. I, I'm referring this man to you because I think you're the only person who could save him. And uh, I, I do like that for all of his faults, he very in, he instantly says, yes, I'll take the case. And when the, when Vol is telling him like, well, I, I only have a few pounds. I can't really, you know, I don't know how I'm going to pay the three lawyers that are on this case. One of them just jokes, oh, we'll hire a fourth one to sue you for our fee. Yeah. Or, they just, they're not telling him, oh, well, cash first, then freedom. They're yeah. just saying, we'll take the case and something will work itself out. Yeah, it's it's the part of being very businesslike and, and focused on the case that, that works out as a plus. <laughs> like, he's absolutely the kind of treatment you want on your side. Because yes. he will fight. Like... He earnestly, he went into it earnestly believing that Vol is innocent. And he took the case because he believed he was innocent. Um, he has a little trick that he plays that, uh, is how he determines whether someone is, is telling the truth. And as we find out, it doesn't work. <laughs> right. It's, it's a terrible trick, but it, seems impressive and that's that he plays with his monocle so that the light reflects into the face of the uh, person he's talking to mm -hmm. so it's kind of a personal third degree that he gives them and then based on how they react he determines he, he determines you know whether they're telling the truth and it's complete nonsense it's just oh, a power yeah. play <laughs> it's it's like axe cop being able to tell if you're a good guy or a bad guy based on your front kick style <laughs> <laughs> but it becomes it becomes a habit that's critical at the end of the movie mm -hmm. where he becomes complicit in the actions 
So it's, it's that kind of thing that I love those little details, uh, as well as just there's a moment of absolute silly giddiness right before the case lands in his lap. When, uh, Miss Pimsel, uh, is it Plimsel? Miss Plimsel. Plimsel. The, the nurse played by his wife, Elsa Lanchester, <laughs> um, yes. uh, has finally gotten him to, to head towards uh, the upstairs so that he can rest as he's supposed to be doing. And he gets in this mechanical chair that they've given him and he gets this little kid grin of just delight as it takes him up the stairs and he hits it to go back down and he hits <laughs> it to go back up and he, he's just having the time of his life on this stupid chair <laughs> and then plot comes for him. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, as long as you're an invalid, you might as well have some fun. Yes. I mean, that's the kind of thing where I'm like, okay, I can take this. <laughs> I can deal with this yeah, personality. I mean, he starts out as a stern, bellowing jerk at everybody, but you, you know, when he reveals those layers underneath it, uh, there's a point where he like winks at somebody and then trundles it back up the stairs at great length and then decides to trundle back down <laughs> where Part of it is just so that he can annoy Miss Plimsoll, but part of it is he's got to learn how to be in the world now as as an semi-invalid. Uh, and and I'm sure everyone is trying to protect him as much as they can, but he's trying to determine, you know, how much... If, if you are so winded you literally cannot climb a flight of stairs, that's some bad news, and you do have to make accommodations. Yeah. Um... But he again, you know, immediately while talk, you know, what decides him to even talk about taking the case is seeing that the original lawyer has cigars. And so yes. he's like, yeah, I'll talk to you. So I, takes them into I've his office. To talk to now. Yes. Yeah. Locks the door and immediately starts it on the cigar. <laughs> That is his focus. And then he tries to find out what kind of case it is that's that's here. Yes. He's such a he's an immature jerk. And he's so good at it. I I thought the part that really aged badly was his continual responses of, oh shut up. Every time Miss Plimsoll tried to have him do anything. Yeah. That uh, didn't that, age so well. No. I but, you know, it's 1957. No married couples liked each other in any medium in 1957. One of the jokes in the Adams family is that they were so unlike everyone else on TV that the husband and wife actually wanted to be around each other. <laughs> so, and to be clear, they are not married up. in context of the movie, but yeah. Right, right. <laughs> they were just spouses working together as to the, the lead and a supporting comic relief character in this. And uh, there's, there's a great moment where her watch alarm goes off for, for his pill regimen in court. Yes. <laughs> and of course it's the loudest, most obnoxious buzzing sound available. <laughs> but again, if, if you have to make allowances for uh, once you start having chest pains, put a nitroglycerin pill under your tongue. Like, dude is not in good shape. No. <clears throat> no, he's taking, 
you know, he's getting shots. He's taking lots of pills. He's drinking liquor instead of the cocoa he's supposed to be having. Miss mm-hmm. <laughs> Plimsoll even checks his cane at one point because he was hiding cigars in them. <laughs> Yes, and, and in fact, she says, I know you'll never hit me with this cane because that's where you're hiding your cigars. And then pops the bottom of the cane off and like three or four cigars fall on the floor and just sort of look, he just looks down at them sadly like, oh, I've been found out. <laughs> also, I don't have my cigars now. <laughs> the other big personality in the movie is Una O'Connor. No, we'll get to her. <laughs> but <laughs> Marlena Dietrich, of course. Um, I, I can't even imagine watching this in 57, having, you know, already seen a lot of glamorous Marlena Dietrich roles and then seeing her as this just completely she comes off as so ruthless and icy. Um, I mean, through the bulk of the movie, like when, when he's talking to her about her husband, uh, before the trial, just trying to, 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 to figure things out. She's saying things like, Oh, Yes, he told me to to support his alibi. Oh, I suppose you want me to say that he was there. And yes. just really dropping all kinds of hints that she's not really concerned with how Vol is going to come out and that she thinks this is all just kind of laughable <laughs> or at least beneath her mm-hmm. and it's such a great performance <laughs> like it really is uh, you you get the feeling that she's very calculating very mercenary or very transactional in everything that she does if she asks could you pass the salt she wants to see how much salt she could leave with yeah <laughs> And and part of it carries through the whole movie, like her calculating nature and her ruthlessness, and the fact that you know when when Roberts uh, when Sir Roberts tries the the monocle trick on her, she just gets up, pulls down the blinds, and says, "There, you should feel more comfortable now." Yes, <laughs> I mean, just. Just completely turning the whole thing around and taking control of the entire conversation. And on the stand, she's eviscerating Vol. And he's just, you know, he starts shouting from the, the dock, just screaming, you know, why are you doing this? And for all the world looking like Kevin McCarthy at the, at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, just a- out of control. No, literally, he looks like Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> you know, it's, 
it's such I I can't really talk about how great she is in this without getting into the the spoilers. <laughs> Should we have a beeping noise or something? Should we put in a spoiler warning? Or should we just allude to it? So yeah, for the next, uh, skip over the next chapter if you don't want to know the ending, because we're going to talk about the ending. <laughs> we're going to talk some bits about the ending. So it turns out that Christine had no other man. There was no Max to whom she wrote letters. She did write all of the letters, every single one in that giant stack of letters. She let Sir Roberts catch her at it, and she is the other woman who gave him the letters in the first place. It's like a triple axle of perjury at this point. Yes, she is so Where beyond perjury. <laughs> she made up a story so that she could convince people she was working against her husband so that he would be found guilty. And if she's lying, obviously he must be innocent. Other spoiler warning, he's guilty as sin, but now that he's been found innocent, he cannot be tried again for the same offense. And... With him free and clear, she dreams of rejoining him and in happiness because she truly did love him and did all of this for him. But he's leaving her to go with this woman that's been sitting by Miss Plimsoll throughout the trial as a, as a, a bystander, a um, spectator, spectator. Someone in the gallery. I don't know what the actual British term is for person watching the court proceedings because television is boring. <laughs> but this is the point when the monocle comes back into play because um, Sir Roberts uses the monocle trick to draw a, her attention to the knife because he's furious that he's he was duped. He is furious that he was not in control, that his client was actually guilty and played him to get off instead of trusting his skill that, that, mm -hmm. that none of this had anything to do with him. It was all their trickery that got him off. So he uses the monocle to to cast light onto the de the knife which then Christine full picks up and stabs her husband to death with um so he's sort of an accessory at this point yes <laughs> but he has a new and, client <laughs> and we have someone who's punished for a different crime than the one he was on trial for yeah. You know, she was fine with the murder and totally fine with getting uh, 80,000 pounds out of it. But being told, adios, I, this this other woman and I are going to go around the world on the, uh, while you're in prison for telling lies in court. Like, ouch. 
Yeah. Really, ouch. There's at least three characters in this movie who think that they are so clever and perceptive, nobody can fool them, and they all get rooked at one point or another. Yeah, every single one of them. It's it's amazing. That's almost a theme of the movie, um, is just the danger of believing that you are in control. Right. You think you're you're fooling everybody, and you're half right. Uh, when I was thinking about this the other day, I was seeing it as a movie that is about vices and deception. Okay. Because these are the things that take center stage and motivate everybody. You know, you've got Sir Roberts as the main character who is very vain about his skills he is addicted to smoking and drinking, uh, even though he is not supposed to anymore. And he just uses right. trick after trick. He's constantly doing things like the monocle gag, uh, sneaking, uh, you know, having one of his assistants swap out the verified thermos of cocoa for the thermos of booze. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> he which, even, which reminded me, uh, I made you watch the dish at one point, right? Yeah. So when, when the prime minister and the government functionaries are there, to watch the moon landing, everybody's drinking whiskey out of teacups so that every time there's a picture taken of them, you know, watching the moon landing, they've all got teacups in their hands. And it's just like a little running gag. Somebody will just come by and say, oh, more tea, minister, and top it up with booze. <laughs> like, everyone, everybody there knows it's not actually tea. But everybody there knows that <laughs> tea is what you're supposed to be drinking at this point, so... By gosh, we're having tea. <laughs> About 85 proof tea, but tea. And, and then as for the, the case itself, you've got layers, multiple layers of deception, all rooted in vices like uh, adultery and uh, stealing and, you know... <laughs> Murder. Murder. (laughs) And, you know, so, and everybody pays for their vices. Everybody. And yet, at the end, the core person, the person the the whole thing starts and ends with, Sir Roberts, has learned nothing from it. (laughs) <laughs> and goes back exactly as he was, but now has gotten Miss Plimsoll really hyped about continuing to to ride along with him onto the next adventure, supplying him with alcohol and, and cigars. Uh, and tobacco, yeah. <laughs> and so, in a way, Vice wins out. <laughs> <laughs> responsible vice wins out. Yes, because he also does listen to some of the advice. He does take the pills. He does take the shots. There's even a point where we can see how long he's been in court because he's supposed to take one pill every hour. And there's a a seriously diminished supply on on the bench in front of him. Yeah. So, yeah, he's he's doing... 
maybe a little bit more than the bare minimum of what will keep him alive. He's just also, he's not trying to merely live. No. He's trying to, to still continue living his life in the manner he was accustomed to. I mean, honestly, it can't have just been booze and smokes. He looks like he weighs about 330 pounds in this. Yeah. So, yeah. There's got to be food somewhere in there. Rich dinners, <laughs> rich dinners, lots of eggs, lots of bacon, lots of empty, you know, lots of empty calories from, from booze or wine <laughs> or any other things like that. But dinners with that, Orson Welles. Right. Well, that'll do it. <laughs> but, but that he, as this sort of singular figure who has come to terms with all of his vices, it's sort of that he's, he knows what he's doing. He's not adult. He's not an adulterer. I, in fact, I don't believe there is a Mrs. Sir Wilfred anywhere in there. I, uh, no, so mercifully, that, no one had to take that bullet. Right. <laughs> so this, this, you know, I'm married to this one woman and there's, there's backstory about, uh, her, there, a wife cannot be compelled to give testimony against her husband in British courts, but she is technically a bigamist because she was still married to a German dude, but she bailed on him to get to England after the war. So she technically, it's not a valid marriage. And some of that might have been uh Vol's way of clearing her out once things were done too. Like, oh, well, we were never really married, so I don't even need to get a divorce now. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's speaking it's, of ruthless, ruthless calculation and mercenary nature. <laughs> the first time I saw this, I didn't think much of Tyrone Power's performance. I I thought he was Kevin McCarthy because anytime I've seen him in anything, I swore it was Kevin McCarthy. But <laughs> I didn't think much of his performance, other than that it was you know it, it was what it needed to be. This time watching it, knowing what he's doing the whole time. Oh my God. <laughs> the yeah. risks he's taken to, to continue to performatively, um, <laughs> act, uh, outraged by the proceedings. It just, wow. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of the axis around the entire movie because you know if it's an Agatha Christie thing that there's going to be a mystery and a solution and a killer and a detective and all that kind of thing. But how they're actually put together, you know, uh, Taco Bell really only has like seven ingredients, but they combine them in different ways, in different layers or with a different wrapper. And behold, you've got a brand new thing. Yeah. <laughs> And that's why Agatha Christie is kind of like Taco Bell. <laughs> it's the way that you do it. It's sort of like listening to a, a band play a standard. Like, how are they going to interpret this thing? How are, mm -hmm. how is this version of a song going to be different than somebody else's take on the same material? Like, you can play all the notes, but what are you going to do with the music? And I think that's where the lineage of this one comes in. Uh, because had it just been a more or less straight ad adaptation, um, I think it would have still been enjoyable. I think it still would have been good. But it wouldn't have been witness for the prosecution. Um, so let, 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 let's, 
let, let's examine a little bit to so I can support this bizarre theory. <laughs> I'm going to allow it. <laughs> uh, it starts uh, in 1925 with the Agatha Christie short story, Trader's Hands. Uh, that she then later adapts uh, into the play Witness for the Prosecution, uh, which opens in 1953. Now, weirdly, it had also been adapted earlier, I think in 1950, mm-hmm. uh, for a TV show. Uh, I think it was called, uh, an episode of Danger. And that's that's where the credit for Lawrence B. Marcus comes in, because he's listed as adaptation. He adapted the short story for an episode of, of TV. So this movie is a combination of Marcus's at a TV adaptation and Christie's own play adaptation off of this short story. And then you put onto it that, you know, it's, it's put together and massaged by Wilder and Kernitz. And wow. I mean, it's gripping throughout the dialogue pops. Uh, there, you know, I don't want to say that, you know, the actors thereby didn't do, have much to do, but it's a lot easier for great actors to, to excel when they're given really good dialogue. And. Oh, certainly. Almost and, everybody uh, got it. <laughs> and looking over, uh, Wilder's previous career, there's, there's things like Sunset Boulevard where it's narrated by the murder victim. Uh, there's, there's things where he was using part of the score in double indemnity to kind of represent the addiction Mm -hmm. where he was a filmmaker who knew that it is this alchemy of, of the performance, the dialogue, the score, the cinematography, the camera work, where everything works together in this collaborative medium. So he must've been thinking, how can I make this stage play less stagey? How can we work this part of, you know, this part of the story in? We'll do a big flashback about how they met. We'll do, uh, you know, and that will require a fight scene at a collapsing set because yes. of course it will. <laughs> uh, you know, how will we show that how friendly and outgoing and genial this guy is? And he's demonstrating his egg beater that can separate the, the white and yolk. Oh my God. And he, it looks like an infomercial. He's like beating this egg like bang, just crazy town. And it's like this frothy meringue in the bowl. And apparently it's working exactly like he wanted it to work. And, and the, you know, the poor rich old lady that's, that's really only in the movie to get killed is, is there like just as excited as he is that yes, this looks like it's an actual convenience that works. And, and that adds so little to the film other than watching him put an apron on over his suit jacket and whip the hell out of this egg in a, in a bowl. That it's, it's these various things where 
Billy Wilder must have noticed, like, okay, here's how I can do this. Here's how I can do that. Here's how I can show, not tell. Sometimes I need to tell instead of show. Because when you do that, when it's all just on the dialogue, instead of it being, you know, the flashback where he explains how they met in World War II, it's just people saying things and you can take it or leave it. I think that that's one of the more important parts of all those courtroom scenes is there's no flashback to her writing letters to Max. She's just suddenly has to, you know, stand there while they're reading the letters to Max out. And because it's only being told, it's not being shown, it is or is not true. And that's this sort of thing. I mean, when you have the triple betrayal in the courtroom and... And basically the chess move and counter move of you're technically a bigamist, so you are compelled to give testimony against your husband versus now we have found that you are also betraying him. So your testimony, you know, we now that we know you're a liar, your testimony, he's the killer, must also be a lie. Like, that's some great stuff. Yeah. That's some fantastic plotting. And I'm sure it would was great on the stage or it would just whip back and forth about all these revelations. But in that courtroom set with the gallery going, <gasps> yeah. at, at all these moments, it's fantastic. Yeah. I, you mentioned before how unassuming the, the cinematography is. And, you know, that's, that's exactly it. It just, it does exactly what it needs to do when it needs to do it to bring the maximum effect. And you barely even notice it happening. It's right. And, so and good. when it's that subtle and so effective, it's just one more ingredient into the alchemy. I mean, I, I would love to see Sam Raimi direct an adaptation of this. But <laughs> do we need zooming, diving camera work in a courtroom thriller? I don't really think we do. I think we do in one spot. Like the only thing that I would accept in in a a, a, a you know high octane remake of this mm-hmm. would be a crash zoom on uh, on the ear of uh, Janet McKenzie, the the maid, as yes. she's trying to hear what Sir Roberts is saying at a normal yes. tone that the rest of the people can hear. That Yeah, I'll, I'll allow it. And that's really, like, again, I can't attest to how much of this came from what sources, but it's exactly what I expect in a Wilder movie. Of There are these incredible broad moments, but that's not the me. Like... No. They're there no, and it, they're exciting, but there's always stuff going on. There are so many subtle, quiet moments. There's so much dialogue that you have to be paying attention or you'll miss that something just happened. Not something important, but just yeah. the little digs and the little maneuverings. It's, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I I imagine watching this one the second time will be a little bit like watching The Usual Suspects the second time. A little bit. Uh, Once I, you know the significance of some of the things that are being said and done, some of the things that are not being said and done. Yes. <laughs> to yeah. go back to The Wire for a sec, 
there's a bit near the uh, end of season one where there's a conversation between somebody with lots of power and authority and somebody who doesn't have very much. And what isn't said in that conversation becomes very important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the kind of stuff I was noticing this, this second time watching it myself yeah. was just all of these, all of these points where people ask the wrong question or offer the misleading information. And, <laughs> and, and it all adds up. It, yeah. You know, every, every brick builds the wall. And at the end of it, you have, you know, Thanks to the Hayes production code, you get some things that have to happen. You know, crime can't pay. But I can see a, a version of this where it's just too late. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's also proof that, you know, sometimes restrictions help. I, uh, you know, I, I think James Cameron's best movies are the ones where he still had to figure out how to spend that budget rather than having essentially an infinite amount of money. Uh, yes. <laughs> when you have a play about an adulterous murderer who needs to be found f- falsely innocent, like, there's some stuff you can and can't say and can and can't do under the Hayes production code, and it works marvelously even within those restrictions. Yeah, because it it uses them as part of the plot and part of right. the, you know, everything supports it. It's not the the tacked-on ending of the bad seed. It's, no. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it, would, it reminds me of another thing from Billy Wilder. Uh, I assume you've seen Double Indemnity a couple of times by now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, in my classic movie club, I had not seen it, so we all got a chance to give it a spin, and we came up with the term fully clothed adultery to, to describe yes. what was going on. <laughs> but like, you don't need somebody's butt hanging out of their, their pants in order to sell the idea of what is happening. No. You just need to have it in the movie. And even with the production code, and even with crime is not allowed to, to pay in the, the entire movie and that, you know, kind of dictating what the ending has to be. It's still a gripping, exciting movie full of whip smart dialogue and great performances. So even with, you know, you're not allowed to do things this way as, as an integral part of the film from the ground up, you know, before they wrote the screenplay, they knew what they could and could not do and, and portray. I, it it's just great to watch the performances. It's great to watch, you know, some of the, the comedy and some of the shocking parts of it. There's a, a point where somebody, you know, shows off, well, the reason I want revenge against this person is, and then moves her hair. And there's this nasty constellation of scars on the side of her face where it's just like, okay, wow. Yeah. I can see why you have a mad eye. Yeah. And, and it tells you the entire backstory there pretty much instantaneously. Yeah. I think that's a good summary of like why I wanted to talk about this movie. Um, because it is a combination of an intricate, well-supported plot that satisfies kind of an intellectual 
approach, right? It's like, oh, yes, this piece fits here and this piece fits here. It's very satisfying. Yes. Um, it's nice to watch those dominoes all go down in all those patterns, isn't it? Yeah. And it's also incredible performances, which, like, it's not just this dry exercise in moving the pieces on the board. Uh, it, it doesn't seem that calculating while you're watching it. You're, you're more into, swept into the moments as people's emotions seem to be driving them. Um, towards this, uh, towards this finale. And, and that's like, that's the pinnacle for me right there. Like, I can enjoy a movie that makes no sense. I, uh, as long as it's exciting and I can enjoy a movie that's dull as hell as long as it all pieces together or is black and white, foreign language, languidly paced vampire movie. Yeah, but, but you've seen all three of those. <laughs> <laughs> but if you put those pieces together uh, and make it exciting and mechanistically plotted, um, wow, yeah, <laughs> this is this is one of the greats. It really is, uh, and and uh, I'm also you know we mentioned it a little bit at the top of the hour. I'm very glad that it's a new type of genre. I don't think we've done a flat out Western or a war movie yet. Nope. I, uh, you know, we did a romantic, at least half a romantic comedy last year with time after time. Uh, it, not everything we do is going to be, you know, science fiction or horror. And thank goodness for that. And it's one of those great things about being friends with another cineast is that we, we, have seen these things like, oh, have you seen this weird little movie from before? No, I haven't. And then boom, it's in the hopper and we both get to check it out. Yeah. It's nifty. It has nift. <laughs> and we'll get there. I've got, uh, I mean, Ray Milan did a couple Westerns. So <laughs> yeah, well then eventually we'll have to get there. I don't know how much the, how much of this is like actual court procedure. I don't, and then or yeah. now, I'm not sure about any of that because of course I didn't get a law degree. I got a degree in film studies from Eastern Michigan University, <laughs> but they did let me run the projector there a couple times, which means that I was able to show some film clips. A 1982 TV movie remake starred Ralph Richardson, Diana Rigg, Bo Bridges, and, you guessed it, Donald Pleasance. This movie is listed as number six in the American Film Institute's top ten courtroom dramas. In 2016, Ben Affleck was announced as the producer, director, and star of a remake of the film, though production has not yet started. One more thing to blame on the COVID. The flashback scene in a German nightclub cost $90,000 to film and required 38 stuntmen for the fight. That's a lot of money. <laughs> it was a big ruckus, too. They just sort of lumped onto each other. It's that amazing, we're not really choreographing this fight choreography. Alfred Hitchcock said that people congratulated him on directing such a wonderful film despite the fact that it was directed by Billy Wilder. And it is rather Hitchcockian in many ways, so I can see why people would expect that. 
Until 1974's adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express, this was the only adaptation of an Agatha Christie work that she liked. The film was shown to the English royal family at a command performance screening, but the producer asked the royals to sign a pledge, promising that they wouldn't tell anyone else the ending. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Charles Lawton based his performance on his own lawyer, including the tactical use of a monocle. <laughs> Screenwriter Harry Kernitz described Billy Wilder as actually two people, Mr. Hyde and Mr. Hyde. This film is the only collaboration between the two. Uh, there were two televised adaptations of the play released before the movie was made one for the BBC in 1949 and the other for CBS in 1953. Tyrone Power played the title role in a 1939 Western about Jesse James, which makes it possible that he's seeing one of his own movies when Leonard and Mrs. French meet at the theater. And finally, Billy Wilder directed 14 different actors in Oscar-nominated performances, including Charles Lawton and Elsa Lanchester in this film. And that's film clips. So, in year three, we're still doing some of the same things we were doing way the heck back in year one. And one of those things is that we ask our friends on Facebook to throw suggestions at us from a question, tangentially or not so tangentially related, to the film that is under discussion. Sean gave us this one, and it's a magnificent question. Fiasco Friends, as we prepare to record another episode tomorrow night, we're thinking about movies that feature a lead character acting against medical advice. Any recommendations? Answers may be read in the episode. Mark Mitchell says, Constantine, his impending death by lung cancer becomes a point in the resolution, even. Kelvin Hatley says, the doctor in Count Yorga, a vampire, who smokes and prescribes a diet of beef. <laughs> Mike Bakovin, the wrestler, I choose to see the ending as Randy going out doing the only thing he was good for. Ouch. Yeah, I, I really need to see that. I've seen bits and bobs, but I need to just watch the whole thing start to finish. The The stuff I've seen has been amazing. Josh Shepard goes with Splice, in which two researchers continue to ignore their better judgment and the advice of their colleagues and each other, and crap just gets worse and worse for them with each error in judgment that they make. <laughs> Dave Thomas, our man in Hamill Hempstead, contributes... In All the Colors of the Dark, Edwidge Fennec ignores the advice of her psychiatrist and tries to overcome the trauma of losing a child by joining a satanic sex cult. It goes about as well as you'd expect. Oof. <laughs> and, and Tad Good, our former neighbor on the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, the PFPN.com, from Attack of the Killer Podcast, simply says Cronenberg's The Fly. And that is indeed an ill-advised move. <laughs> Watch out, this guy eats chocolate bars. Bad move, Neil. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tim, uh, do you have a movie where a lead character acts against medical advice? I do. So, in The Dark Knight Rises, Bruce Wayne goes to his doctor and determines if he should go heliskiing 
which I prefer to think of as hella skiing, not there is a helicopter dropping me on that one. <laughs> and gets a list of all the things that are wrong with his body. In fact, he has to build a knee brace into the bat suit that crunches everything back into place before he can go out and try to rescue Gotham City. Uh, because he goes against the advice of his doctor, Bane breaks his spine. Should have listened to the man, Bruce. Wow. <laughs> and, and that's one of those things like, you know, Frank Miller drawing Batman with his shirt off in The Dark Knight Returns and showing just that it's a roadmap of damage over every inch of his body. Because you can't be Batman and not get racked up all the time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's like being Jim Rockford. Yeah. <laughs> every, every car hood in the area is going to have an imprint of your face. Yeah, it's, it's a forehead dent on everything. <laughs> you should wear a hat. What about you, Sean? What's your, your choice for, yeah, I probably shouldn't have did that and somebody told me I shouldn't have did that. Well, this is going to shock you. Because oh, I'm languidly paced black and white for language <laughs> vampire film. Stay out of the sunlight, Count. <laughs> uh, no, it's but it is something that I, I talk about a lot. Uh, if I haven't mentioned it at least once in the last two seasons, um, uh, I've really been slipping. <laughs> oh, and that's the 1973 nearly autobiographical <laughs> all that jazz yes uh, it's showtime <laughs> it's showtime oh my god it's um yeah it's basically bob fossey and robert ellen arthur writing a movie about uh what's going to happen to bob fossey if he doesn't follow directions and stop smoking and drinking and using amphetamines and sleeping and, around with everybody. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the entire movie really plays out as a kids listen to your doctors. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. With a, a truly astonishing final 10 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, the only reason I I haven't thrown this in the hopper in three seasons is just that, like, I feel like I talk about it a lot anyway. So. <laughs> we <laughs> so might as well get those all in one spot. It's true. It's true. We could just gush about all that jazz in season four. <laughs> Plus, uh, it means we could eventually do a double feature of amphetamine-driven non-performer musical geniuses. <laughs> Tempting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there's that theater that'll let you rent the place out for 300 bucks. Yeah, not in this COVID. <laughs> uh, well, they, they will, but you can only allow, I think, 25 people in and you have to space out in the theater. Mm. So if I could get $10 from 24 other people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that time. We're just about out of pills, <laughs> and uh, my assistant is uh, on 
on their way with a stack of last-minute evidence. So it looks like it's time to hit the randomizer and see what's next. All right, but you still have to have your calcium injection. Ugh. Uh, so what completely random selection from your movies, but never mind, has the randomizer kicked out today? <laughs> it looks like Waxworks. It's Three our, in a row. It's our you got, now, a hat trick. you got a hat trick with the randomizer, Sean. I did. <laughs> and it's our now obligatory uh, silent era film. Uh, oh, no, I like that. I mean, like like we've both mentioned multiple times. Half the fun of doing this is seeing stuff you hadn't seen before or even known about. Well, I hope you dig this one. It's the, it's one of the earliest, um, anthology movies I've seen. Oh, fantastic. So it's, oh, so it's like, this is the gallery of horrors. Here is the first story type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, literally the framing device is a guy gets hired to come up with, um, placards for the the figures in a wax museum so each segment is enthusiast yeah (laughs) each story or at least he's doing it for money yeah he is he is (laughs) (laughs) so that'll be that'll be a lot of fun looking forward to it so we'll be talking about waxworks next time until then thank you for listening to this episode of fiasco family movie night if you like our podcast, please tell your movie fan friends about us however you can. The Fasco family is part of the Megaphonic Network. You can find us at megaphonic.fm slash fiasco, alongside other fancy podcasts, such as By the Bywater, which explores topics around and adjacent to J.R.R. Tolkien. We're also at facebook.com slash fiascobrotherspodcast, and on Twitter as at fiascofamilypod. If you enjoy the show, consider donating to our Patreon for a dollar a month to get exclusive mini-episodes. Also on our Patreon page for free, totally boss discussions cut from the existing episodes. That's at patreon.com slash fiascobrothers. Or support the network at patreon.com slash megaphonic. Both options will support us, get you access to bonus content, and can give you an invite to a members-only Slack to hang out with all the megaphonic hosts. We'll see you again in a few weeks on our next episode. And again, thank you for listening. It was a Friday and the night out. I was going round to see my niece at Glenister Road, which is about five minutes' walk. I left the house at half past seven. I promised to take her a dress pattern that she admired. Oh, is this thing necessary? An excellent question. However, it has been installed at considerable expense to the taxpayers, so let us take advantage of it. Please continue. Well, when I got to my niece's, I found...